You're listening to an IOE podcast from the UCL Institute of Education. Powered by UCL Minds. This is Research for the Real World. Conversations with researchers and the paths they've taken to shape our everyday lives. Hello, I'm Dr. Himera Iqbal, and I'm a lecturer in psychology at the Thomas Coram Research Unit at the UCL Institute of Education. On this episode, we're delighted to have Chris McManus, Professor of Psychology and Medical Education at University College London. Chris is jointly a part of the Faculty of Brain Sciences and the UCL Medical School. Much of Chris's work has been about trying to understand what or who makes a good doctor. So, his research has followed medical students, junior doctors and specialists on their journey through their medical careers. His excellent work has not gone unnoticed and in January 2020, the Association for the Study of Medical Education awarded him with a gold medal for his contributions to the study of medical education. Today, we're going to talk to Chris about his work, but also about the COVID-19 pandemic and how medical students have been involved in this. Welcome to the podcast, Chris. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So how are you, Chris? How's your day been and how's everything going for you at the moment? Well, I think like most academics, we're at home. We have our computers, we process data, but it's also like all crises. I think there's opportunities for research and I, you know, I often say to people that in educational terms, the COVID-19 pandemic is actually a giant educational experiment. All the things we took for granted, like children being in school for two years while they're doing their A-levels or whatever, have suddenly all got torn apart. We have no idea what the consequences of that will be at all. Absolutely. It's been, you know, something that's going to affect this generation for, for a long time. I want to come back now to kind of hear more about your career. And I want to start by asking you a little bit about how you first got into medical education and how it all began. Well, I suppose it all began because I began as a medical student myself. So I was studying medicine at university. And particularly when I was in Birmingham doing clinical studies, I started to get interested in well, who with all these other people around I was studying with, 150 of them, why were they there? What did they want out of the career? And as background to that, I'd already done a degree in psychology during my medical studies. So I sort of had some of the tools for beginning to ask such questions. And so myself and a couple of colleagues in the house I lived in, we put out a questionnaire. It was all very amateurish and there was no ethics in those days. So we, we just put out a questionnaire to everybody in the medical school and asked them all sorts of things. It was fascinating. Mm-hmm. And I sort of started to get into it from there onwards, really. Do you remember any of the questions that were in that questionnaire? It was about 10, 12 pages long. You'll find it on my website, actually. We've put all of those sort of old questionnaires and so on on the, the website so people can see them. It asked about almost everything you think about. You know, where did they come from? Doctors in the family, that other health professionals in the family, what interested them in medicine, what careers and specialties they'd like to go into. A whole bundle of stuff on attitudes, lots of stuff on their hobbies and interests. You know, we tried to get a big picture of them, basically, and loads of them replied. And so we then started to say, well, you know, how do these people differ? Mm, that's so interesting. I'm definitely going to check out that questionnaire on your website. You'll be able to recognise it because it was typed on a really old-fashioned manual typewriter. The fonts on all of those questionnaires evolve from the mid-1970s through to the current day when they look much more sophisticated. (laughs) That's amazing. So why do you think medical education is particularly important? First of all, all education is important. Education is the thing that makes us what we are. Without education, 
we would have nothing. We need expertise and abilities and so on. And we transfer that to one another. That's part of the human condition. It's sort of this transmission of knowledge and information and so on. And that starts out when children learn to read and write and do arithmetic and that sort of thing at school. But of course, it carries right the way on through. That's true of everybody in any technical profession or any other sort of profession. We learn from each other and we transmit that information back down to other people. That's just normal part of social learning. I think what's different about medicine is that there's a very clear set of consequences of not knowing the right answers. And to put it bluntly, if you don't know what you're doing in medicine, then the the consequences can be very serious indeed. And so patients get treated wrongly, badly or whatever. So that part of good healthcare is actually having a well-educated cadre of doctors and other health professionals. And therefore, we need to know whether that works. It's not quite the same in lots of other specialties and lots of other professions, but it's very clear in medicine. The other very clear thing about medicine, of course, is that in the UK anyway, Mm -hmm. doctors work for a monopoly employer, the National Health Service. Very few work outside it. And that means we can follow them through right the way from applying to medical school, right the way through to retirement, if you like. We also have good outcome measures. We can look at, you know, are they in trouble with the General Medical Council for incompetence? We can ask, you know, we're trying to ask things like, you know, how do their patients do and that sort of thing? What do their patients think of them? And that's not possible. You know, you try to imagine doing that for employees of a university in general. We haven't got anything like the power to do that. The other thing about doctors is they're examined all the time. You know, they just never stop being assessed. And so we know about those assessments and so on. So it's a wonderful resource for checking out professional learning, actually. It's amazing because I imagine, you know, with all the data you've captured over the years, you've got really interesting stories and you can see how people have changed and grown over time. And, you know, it it must be absolutely fascinating. It is fascinating. It's worth emphasising that we collect a lot of numerical data, but actually... It's the qualitative data as well, the little stories, the vignettes that the doctors tell. You know, I remember one where we, on a questionnaire, we were asking um, what they might want to do in the future. Had they made up their mind about a specialty? And we gave them a white box to fill in to write what they wanted. And one of them said, to, said I want to be an ophthalmologist. And then the next question, what made you want to be an ophthalmologist? And underneath the respondent, who was, what, one year qualified, I suppose, said it was the first time I looked at the iris through a slit lamp, and it was beautiful. Underneath that, he then said, and it still is, exclamation mark. And essentially, he'd fallen in love with his specialty, hadn't he? Oh, that's wonderful. (laughs) (laughs) I just think it is wonderful. I think it's so rare to find a profession or a job that you really, really enjoy. And I think for medics, you probably really have to have a passion because it's not easy work. And so I think that vignette really does capture that passion, I think, for sure. They don't all have it and they don't all say they want to have it. For some, it is a job. Mm -hmm. But for others, it's much more than that. And it's an interesting question, to what extent we should, as a society, expect our doctors to have such a passion that they'll forgo everything in order to do it. And, you know, they have their people, they have their lives and other things to do. And so it's not quite clear we should expect that passion. You know, it's like a musician. We expect our musicians to be passionate about the music they're playing. But then playing in an orchestra, you can't be passionate the whole time, I'm sure. So I think these things go through a lot we do, right? 
now more than ever, it's something that, you know, we're really thinking about just because, you know, doctors are having to really their lives to, to help others. Yes, it's clear that some of them are risking their lives. And it's true of all health professionals. Yeah. And we also realise they're, you know, they're working 12, 14 hour shifts, seven days a week. Mm. You know, there's a, a lot there, which is not really what we should expect of anybody. And, you know, there's a lot of military metaphors going on in the current crisis. But for many of them, they feel they're literally at the front line. It's the same sort of situation. And that's very hard for them to cope with. I've seen junior doctors in the papers saying, I didn't train to be a doctor to do this. This idea of trauma, it's something that I've, I've worked on. And I think that it's going to be something really interesting that we're going to see, like how people cope. And, you know, the long term from all that they've seen and all that they've gone through. But I want to come back to your research. No, I definitely want to talk more about pandemic, but I'm really just wondering, I mean, are things quite different now from when you first started in terms of medical education? Yes, everything changes in medicine. Things get more complicated, systems evolve and so on. In the end, though, I don't think it's always evolved as much as we think it has. And I often go back to Hippocrates and say, actually, not much has changed since the, the time of Hippocrates. The patients are ill, there's a lot of things to learn, and it's jolly hard to handle it when they don't get better. And that's basically what medicine's about. Uh, ars longa vita brevis, <laughs> a long heart and a short life. Yeah. Gosh. Did medical schools differ? And if so, why? I think they all think they do. Their graduates will all tell them that they do. Their graduates will all say that they do. It's a bit like schools. People have all sorts of opinions on schools, on universities. You know, they all have different flavours and so on. And say, what's it like living in different towns? People will tell you, oh, it's completely different in X or Y or Z. Trying to pin down what's really different about them is quite hard. And a project we've been doing for the last couple of years is actually trying to look at all of the UK medical schools. You may not know, but the numbers increased. There was about 28, 29 medical schools until relatively recently, but there's been a number of new ones created in the last decade or so, and there's roughly about 40 medical schools now. It's so many that nobody can quite remember how many there are, and there's new ones and so on. Many of them haven't yet graduated doctors, which is interesting. And so that's a large enough number of institutions to start to say, well, what do they do differently and why do they do differently? And we know there's differences. There's clear data that some medical schools produce far more general practitioners than others. There's other medical schools that produce many more biomedical researchers. If you look at the exam results at the postgraduate exams, you know, the Royal College of Physicians and that sort of thing, some medical schools, their graduates have far higher pass rates than others. So there's a lot of things going on there. And the question is, where do they come from? And I think there's two sorts of answers. And it's a bit like the whole question in secondary education, you know, do schools actually contribute differently? And it, and I think with medical education, it's the same as with secondary schools. Partly, a lot of the differences are the sort of people that get taken into the medical schools. So if you take different sorts of people in, you get different sorts of people out. Mm. And that with secondary education comes from catchment areas varying and that sort of thing. In medical schools, partly that's the same thing. People mostly like to go to a medical school within 50 or 100 miles of their home, I suppose, for practical reasons. And many people also actually want to live at home. So that very often shifts the types of people who go to particular medical schools. There's also a whole lot to do with academic level. 
you know, it hardly is a surprise to find that you've got to have rather higher academic grades to get into, say, Oxford or Cambridge than you have to get into some of the newer medical schools. And so it's not surprising then that the graduates of those schools do better in their exams. If you do well in exams at one stage in life, you tend to do better in them later on. That's a truism almost in education. The real question then is what's added specifically, the value added by Mm. a medical school? If this person had been to medical school A rather than medical school B, would they have been different? Mm -hmm. And that's the difficult question to answer. At the moment, we've had a lot of effects due to differences in the intake. It should also be said a lot of those differences are what we call self-selection. People say, I wouldn't like to go to Oxford or Cambridge, for instance. I want to go somewhere, you know, it's more rural, you know, University of East Anglia or somewhere where it's a, a very different sort of world and they do a lot of general practice training and so on. So then it's not surprising, perhaps, that they train more general practitioners because they've taken in more people who want to be general practitioners. But that may be because they're good at training general practitioners. These things go round and round in a loop after a while. So teasing it apart academically is quite tricky. And that's we've only just started to do it, but there's been relatively little research on it mm-hmm. until now. Fascinating. It's a real combination of the social sciences, but then you're also kind of studying medical students. It seems like very interdisciplinary work that you're doing there, for sure. Very, very interesting indeed. I think you're right. It, it is interdisciplinary. And, you know, there's a lot of the skills that people have are very varied and so on. You know, I'm a psychologist by training as well as a doctor. So I obviously apply a lot of psychological principles to what I'm doing. Other people will come in from other backgrounds and so on. And yeah, it makes it a fun area to work in. There's a, a lot of nice people from a lot of different backgrounds and they they contribute different things. What sort of psychological kind of thinking do you include to the studies that you do? Psychologists actually are very good at designing studies and analysing tricky data. I always say the trouble with psychology is the data are so bad that we have to have good statistics to find out what on earth is going on in them. And so, you know, I do a lot of quite clever statistics and trying to see you know how we can investigate large numbers of people to assess say stress levels or burnout or something like that so i think a lot of my psychological training comes in there actually but i think also in part it's just a matter of trying to put yourself into the shoes of the person you're investigating you know writing a questionnaire is very much like that you've got to see it through their world and then try and write questions and then when they say that's a ridiculous question i can't answer it you then try and change it and so on until you've got something which gets at the the reality of their experiences. Yeah, it's all about being empathetic, I think. It's really important for being a psychologist. One of the things we've got are some nice questionnaires on empathy, which we're looking at. So, yes. Fantastic. Well, I wanted to ask, you said that, you know, in medical schools, there's a real range of, of different kind of med students and people from different backgrounds. And that's what I wanted to ask you about. What are some of the challenges that medical students face today and does it differ based on socioeconomic status ethnicity schooling i think inevitably yes and i think the whole issue of you know social background and its influences on higher education in general are big interesting topics we know that there's a lot of talented people in the past who never got anywhere near doing the things they might have liked to do and so you know that there's a lot of emphasis on widening participation and so on Having said that, I often do thought experiments. I'm a bit of a philosopher at heart as well. And one of the thought experiments I do is 
or could we take anybody into medical school and train them to be a doctor? You know, we'd randomly take people off the, you know, the lists of voters and so on, the electoral roll. And I don't think we could. And I think actually you need a certain amount of, you've got to have a certain sort of personality, a certain sort of intellectual level Mm -hmm. to be able to cope with the vast amounts of stuff that get thrown at you. Because then people say, well, do you need all that knowledge, all that information? You know, do you need to know all that anatomy, all those diseases and this sort of thing? And I've got a funny feeling the answer is not all of it all of the time, but much of it on many occasions. I remember talking to a senior physician. I'm an examiner for the Royal College of Physicians, the MRCP exam. I do a lot of their psychometrics and so on. I was talking to him and he said, yeah, people complain about some of these questions. They say these are obscure diseases. And we say, yes, that's why we ask about them. And he said, and there was one. I remember I've been asking questions about this in the exam for 30 years. And he said, the other day I was in outpatients and this patient walked in and they had that syndrome. I just recognised it instantly. And that's in a way why we get them to learn it, because one day somebody will walk through the door with it and they need to be diagnosed. So it's quite tricky knowing what they need to know, mm. how much and so on. And, you know, students say, well, this is just, you know, obscure fascinomas, they call them. They're medical objects which are fascinating, but not of much importance in the real world. Actually, no, they're all things that real people have real people suffer from and somebody has to diagnose them. Mm -hmm. So the challenges would you have to really kind of be able to learn and kind of retain a lot of knowledge. You have to have a particular personality type. Do you think that medical schools need to do more about widening participation? Yeah, I think they are doing more about widening participation. There's a, you know, I was at a, a meeting the other day of admissions tutors and they're very concerned indeed about it. And that's because society as a whole is very concerned about it. There's no point in wasting talent. If you can find talented people who want to come into your profession, why would you not want them to do so? Part of it, I think, though, is it goes back to self-selection. If people aren't thinking about being a doctor, then there's not much we can do, really. In the old days, we only used to find out they were even thinking of becoming a doctor because they applied through UCAS to go to medical school. That was the first we knew about them. Now we're beginning to do things like outreach programs and so on. And so we'll take a group of, you know, 16 year olds in the first year sixth or something like that, and then find that some of them might want to do it. And they often get infused by our own students going into those schools and telling them about what it's like to be a doctor. Getting further back, though, is hard. You know, take some 12, 13, 14 year olds. They've got to decide what GCSEs they're going to do and what they're going to care about. And if they do the wrong ones, they'll find they can't get into medical school later. Mm. So that's one side of it. I think there's a lot about aspiration in there as well. And I mean, just thinking about some of the young people I work with, and there's a young girl who comes to mind and she migrated with her family from Latin America and she translates for her mother. And she also is a carer for her mother as well. And she's 16 and she knows she wants to be a doctor. And so she's got that passion and, and that drive. But I guess I really hear your point about outreach because I think yeah. when universities actually go into schools and they show that it is possible and they kind of help explain how the process of getting enrolled I think it would do so much a world of good for many of these young people so I think definitely I agree with you on the fact that you know more outreach needs to be done for sure 
It does. But I think the other side of it is we do need to be realistic. And so, for instance, we did a survey of a whole group of children at about half a dozen comprehensive schools. They were aged 10, they were just leaving primary school, and aged, then we followed them up aged 11 and 12 in their first year or so at secondary school. And we asked them a simple question, what do you want to be when you grow up? It's a straightforward question. And interestingly, about 10% of them said they'd like to be a doctor. Now, that's huge because in general, about 1% of the population is a doctor. So that immediately means that nine out of 10 of those will be disappointed, even if they all have the talent to be able to do it. But when we look then at their performance on various tests and so on that we had, many of them did not have the ability, the aptitude, actually, to be able to pass all the exams. So there's no point in encouraging people to do things which they're subsequently going to fail at. That doesn't help them or anybody else. So the tricky bit is to find the ones who can do it well and encourage them. And of course, although 10% of those children said they wanted to be a doctor, we still need to follow them up. But I bet the ones who actually become doctors, many of them weren't even putting it down at the age of 11. I would never have put down at the age of 11 that I wanted to be a doctor. I was about 12, 13 when I first thought of it. <laughs> well, that's because you're not from a South Asian family. <laughs> well, there's a, that's a very interesting point. Yes, there's a lot of cultural differences here. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, in my family. So um, we're, we're like three sisters and a brother. And my sister is the real doctor. She's a medic. She's a renal consultant. We're also proud of her. I'm the other type, but I got the PhD. So mum's happy. <laughs> I'm a real doctor with a PhD, and I'm never quite sure which is the real one in that combination. You so. can decide, so you did everything. <laughs> okay, so I want to ask you about your gold awards, because I think it's absolutely, I mean, it's such a huge achievement, and it's recognition of all the work that you've done. But can you tell us specifically about the work that saw you winning this award? It's difficult to sum it up, because I think, like all these things, they're sort of lifetime achievement awards, really. So mm -hmm. I think the main thing I'd done was I got into medical education very early in my career, long before it existed as a specialty. There were no medical educationists, really. There were hardly any books on medical education when I started being interested in it. And as a result, I sort of tended to be ahead of the game. I started to do stuff and nobody else was really doing it. It never occurred to them you could collect data on it and that sort of thing. And collecting data is my forte, really. So, you know, people said, oh, look, he's done this, you know, and then then they, I'd find there's something else that needed looking at. And I get the data on that before anybody else and so on and so on. So much of it is just the fact that I've existed long enough. I've been doing it for 40 something years. And as a result, most people in the field know about I'm now older than most of them. And so, you know, that's where it comes from. There's a lot to be said for survival, you know, you, I think you're being too humble. I think you can show off a bit more. <laughs> You've done so much. I think the the other thing is that, and this is actually very true of medical education, the whole field is wide open for research. Mm -hmm. There's so many things that haven't been researched. And mm -hmm. so, for instance, the recent stuff we've been doing on differences between medical schools. Mm -hmm. We published one little paper on that in the mid-90s, didn't get anywhere with it. We published another little thing from some of our own data in the early 2000s, but it didn't take off. And what really has allowed it to take off is that suddenly data are becoming available, which allow us to mm. see how medical schools differ. And in fact, one of the things I've been involved with for the last decade or so is a huge project called UK Med, the United Kingdom Medical Education Database. 
because we realised, oh, 20 years ago, many questions could be answered, but nobody had put all the data together into one place. And what we started to do was say, how can we join all these data together? So we can find out what did they do at medical school? What did they think when they came into medical school? When they go into a specialty, how do they get on in it? The influence for that all the way through my life has actually been the huge cohort studies that British social science is famous for. The Institute of Education now has many, several of the largest cohort studies. Mm -hmm. My PhD, in part, used the National Child Development Study. And this idea that you could take a group of babies born in 1958 and then follow them up every seven, five, ten years find out what's happening to them. And they had 17,000 people in that study. Suddenly you could answer questions that weren't possible to answer before that. And so I think, you know, much of what I've done has been influenced by that. I've done cohort studies myself, and now we're doing the same thing, but with what's called administrative data. And again, you know, it's the sort of thing that's core stuff in the Institute of Education, looking at children at their key stage one, two, three, and so on, following them through, mm -hmm. seeing what predicts what and how it relates to things. I stood on the shoulders of others, as, as the story goes. So I, I think that's much of what I've done. The other single thing I've done, which is rare, I suppose, amongst people in, this, in medical education, I'm damn good at using computers and statistics. And actually, you can't do this stuff without being able to program, to be able to find your way through. I just analysed some data where I've got 240,000 A-levels taken by applicants to medical school over about 15 years. And, you know, suddenly you can ask questions about them in a way you can't if you only have one year at one medical school. Wow, gosh. So, you know, when we're talking about interdisciplinarity, we're talking about, like, different disciplines coming together. It sounds like history seems to be another discipline that might feed into your work as well because it's over time points and you'll be able to kind of note the change over time. So I hear a lot of history as well and historical thinking and how you conceptualise kind of your data. I think that's right. And I think a challenge, as always, is it's very easy to assume that entrants going into medical school will be the same whenever they entered. Now, for instance, just to take this year, for example, the 2020 entrance to medical school will always be different. We know that because mm. they've had a different set of experiences, their exams are different and so on. And that's true, though, actually, for every cohort that enters a medical school or a university. Things are different for them. And, you know, most of the big social science studies try and take that into account. Because if you're born in 1980, you're different to if you're born in 1990. And we've got to take those sort of secular trends, as they call them, into account. And they can be very interesting. Mm. You know, the millennium babies are different. We know that just because they were born then. Because of the pandemic and the issues the NHS facing, you know, we've seen that students have been called to the front line before even sometimes officially graduating. And I wanted to know what you thought about this. And do you think it's necessary? Whether it's necessary, I'm not 100% certain and I can't really comment. I joke that I qualified in medicine so long ago, but when the General Medical Council has to call me back to help with the pandemic, we know it's really serious because I've forgotten most things I know. The question is, I don't know quite what it's like at those front lines. I'm not there. It's not an environment they invite strangers in just to walk around and walk. In fact, we have suggested that they need some anthropologists in there to observe the culture that's developing. It's like a strange culture. They have got in there early. What they're doing, I don't know, but if you look at the traditional Foundation One doctor, the thing they normally start in August, 
then it's very much an apprenticeship there. They're doing quite a lot of things. But of course, they haven't got much experience. They're only just for the first time learning to prescribe properly and all that sort of stuff. Yes. They haven't got a lot of technical skills. They're not very good at sticking tubes into strange places, and which a lot of medicine is about. You know, they know they'll be exposed to quite a lot, but quite what they're doing, I'm not sure. And I think that's something we need to be finding out. It's not very easy to find out at the moment. We, probably in six months, a year's time, we can ask them what they were doing. It's, they're not going to answer our questionnaires at the moment, I, I assume. Every pair of hands is needed. I've got no doubt about that. What the effects are on them, I don't know. I've seen some surprisingly sort of threatened comments by them. This isn't what medicine was meant to be about for me. And you, you know, and that raises the issue of, well, what did they see they were going to be doing in medicine? And of course, the other thing about medicine is it's a, a mansion with many rooms. Most doctors can't do everything and wouldn't want to do everything. They rapidly find a, a room where they like doing what goes on there. And they may be a pathologist, they may be a neurosurgeon, they may be a psychiatrist, they may be a public health physician. And to be thrust into it so quickly, into a bit they may not like at all, may actually have very negative effects. Certainly in the old days when people had to do six-month surgery, they, mm -hmm. they said the one thing that doing six-month surgery has done is to teach me I never, ever want to be a surgeon. <laughs> Others fell in love with it. Gosh, absolutely. My sister does say things like that as well. In the end, she settled on renal medicine, so she's very busy with that. But, I mean, these medical students, I wonder what kind of support they're getting. And, I mean, do you have any kind of idea about yes. this? Like, what kind of support or who they might be able to reach out to? No, I have little idea, and I don't know of much research going on into it. I think it's interesting, though, to think of the military metaphors that keep coming up the whole time. They we're fighting a war, they're on the front line. And, but of course, if you think about who actually in a war fights on the front line, those are people who've been trained to work together as a team, small units and medium-sized units, up to regiments and that sort of thing. They train together for many months and years before they finally go into battle. When they're in battle, they typically have two, three weeks on a front line, then they're withdrawn for rest and recreation, and they're supported a lot. And yet still, they have vast amounts of post-traumatic stress disorder. And Now, I'm not sure that in the battle that appears to be going on at the moment, whether there's any of that infrastructure there to support their needs. And remember, most of that came because... In the First World War, they realised they were suffering badly. The Second World War was a lot better than that. And they began to put people in the right places. The ones who wanted to be on the front line were there. Not entirely, but there was much more of that. And of course, in places like Vietnam first, then Afghanistan, much, much more of that. And I'm not sure we've quite learned that. And in fact, what's happened in hospitals over in just an ordinary practice in the the last 25 years, is we've lost much of the team structure we used to have. They keep reorganising it. They got rid of firms, as they were called. So where you have, you know, 10 people working together for six months at a time, there's now, you know, people keep rotating around. There's a lot less support than there ever was. And I think we're beginning to realise that that's not actually helping the doctors. But, you know, these are complex questions. Chris, it's been absolutely wonderful talking to you and just learning about your work and kind of hearing all the different kind of areas in which you research on and, you know, the fact that your work has real practical applications and it changed people's lives and, and kind of affects society. So I've really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you so much for joining me today. 
Thank you very much. And it was interesting to have your own reflections on coming from a family where some people are medics, <laughs> others are not. You know, there's all sorts of interesting questions there. One of the things I always like is that doctors, we often say, people say, are any of our children a doctor? And they say, I managed to get one of them to be. And that sort of makes them happy. They don't care about the other ones after that. <laughs> I know. I know. Zara, Zara's, Zara's dealing with all of that. <laughs> but it's actually so helpful having a doctor in the family, I must say. And for Zara, anytime anyone has even a finger ache, they call her up and she's there. So, you know, I have so much respect for doctors. They're amazing. If you'd like to know more about Professor Chris McManus, you can go to ucl.ac.uk slash medical education. Remember, there are more podcasts from the IOE ready for you to listen on your favourite podcasting app. Just search for IOE Podcasts and have a listen to our Spotify playlist for our guests and podcast team's favourite hits to get you through the lockdown. Just search Research for the Real World. I'm Himera Iqbal. Thanks so much for downloading and listening to this IOE podcast from the UCL Institute of Education, University College London. 